0: Welcome to Crossroads, a podcast that explores the intersection of faith and Christian living. Crossroads is part of the media ministry at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. Get to know us by visiting us online at fapc.org. Hi, I'm Jamie Staley,
1: Director of Christian Education at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. And we are finishing up our series on fear this month. This fall, we have talked about fear uh, in a variety of different ways, through the lens of anxiety and the Psalms of Lament, to a larger look at a culture of fear in our society. As we are getting close to Christmas, I thought that it might be nice to talk about those messengers in the Bible who are always telling us not to be afraid, Um, the angels that we uh, see throughout the biblical story. So I am excited to have Dr. Susan Garrett joining me this afternoon. Um, Dr. Garrett is a professor of New Testament at Louisville Seminary and also the author of the book, No Ordinary Angel, Celestial Spirits, and Christian claims about Jesus. So, thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Garrett.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
1: Um, you know, as we are getting close to Christmas, <laughs> I think that is the story that I think of most when I think of angels and the um, idea that they have come to not tell us to tell us to do not fear. Uh, what in your research? What? What is it? Why is it that? angels are used um, for that particular aspect of the story?
0: Great question. I think that, of course, we think of Zechariah and Mary, both having visitations of the angel Gabriel in, in the first chapters of Luke. But it is the case that angels appear in a number of places in the Bible and often with that initial message, not to be afraid. So we think about uh, the angel of the Lord, uh, coming to uh, Hagar, for example, when she's lost in the wilderness, or we think about the, the, the figure of God on the throne addressing the prophet Ezekiel uh, in at the beginning of his mission. Um, I think that one of the reasons that biblical authors often bring in angels to these kind of situations is to make a, a statement about God's providential ordering of the world, that these might be terrifying events to the people involved, certainly think about Mary receiving that kind of message from Gabriel. Yeah. Uh, but And yet the, the angel is there to assure that this is really part of the way God has laid things out, part of God's plan. So I think providence is a really important uh, piece of it, uh, showing providence. I also think that um, <clears throat> there is often the, a, a kind of a call that goes with the assurance. So in the case of Ezekiel, he's being called to a very hard mission. The the figure speaking to him keeps saying, you know, this is a rebellious people that I'm sending you <laughs> to. Um, and so there's a kind of have courage for this particular mission. Or or when when God speaks to Moses and, and tells him not to fear. It's because God is calling Moses does something really, really tough. So mm. I think I think those two is- issues are it's often at stake. The demonstration of providence and um and the uh, the the calling to a, a difficult mission mm.
1: so I guess that my next question is a bit hand in hand with that what um what would you say the Bible teaches us about angels? who are angels what what role are they playing throughout the scripture and then how how have those um, views? changed or evolved into what people think of angels today?
0: It's a big question because <laughs> <It> the <is. laughs> Bible was written over uh, many, many hundreds of years mm. and by people that lived amidst various cultures. And and so the, the passage of time and the exposure to different cultures all had an impact on the way that ancient writers and biblical authors talked about encounters with the divine, or encounters with messengers of the divine. So yeah. it's it's hard to give a single answer to that. If you look at different parts of the Bible, you're going to see slightly different depictions of angels. Um, it is the case that um, ancient authors took it for granted that there's a realm called heaven, and that in heaven, God is sitting in glory with other divine beings. And they had, I think, a a greater sense than we often do today of the nearness of heaven, that the boundary between earth and heaven really isn't as great or as impermeable as we might think about it being. So if you think, for example, about the story of Jacob having the vision of the angels climbing up and down the ladder. Um, that, that's how close it is. There are <laughs> angels coming down and, and going back up to heaven. Uh, and so so that illustrates this idea of the closeness of of heaven and earth for many biblical authors. The word angel really does mean messenger. So that, that same word, it's in the Greek versions, it's angelos, is exactly where we get the word angel. But it sometimes refers to he- to earthly messengers as well as heavenly. And in fact, sometimes the boundary between earthly and heavenly is a little uh, her earthly messengers and heavenly messengers is is a little bit ambiguous is this an earthly or a heavenly messenger it's not always completely clear Um, so there's a lot of roles that angels play in the bible they are uh, warriors members of the divine host that battles on behalf of israel for example Um, they are uh, around the throne of god giving god praise and worship so they're worshipers um, they are truly messengers, ones who convey something from God to earthly uh, beings. They sometimes, at least in some books from the time period, although not so much in the Old Testament, are healers. So in the, in the book of Tobit, which is one of the Apocrypha, so written between the Testaments, uh, there's an angel Raphael who, who heals uh, some, some various illnesses and, and some situations in that book. So I think in the, in the modern era, We tend to flatten a lot of that. We don't really see the texture and diversity. And we we ignore some of the roles that are played by angels in the Bible. We don't think much of angels as agents of judgment, for example. And yet they do play that role in some places in the Hebrew Bible. The most common ways that I think popular culture today portrays angels uh, are as healers and as um, rescuers. So hmm. when I think of healers, all you have to think about is the movie It's a Wonderful Life. So it's a hmm. kind of psychological healing. You remember George Bailey, is he's discouraged with his life. He's ready to jump off a bridge yeah. because he's convinced that his life has meant nothing, that staying stuck in this podunk town has been a waste of his effort. He hasn't realized any of his dreams. And so this this guardian angel named Clarence comes and Um, and shows him a vision of what the world would be like, what what this town would be like if he weren't there. And that heals his vision. Suddenly now he can see things properly. You know, he can put them in their right perspective. And that's the same motif that runs, if you ever watched the old CBS show, Touched by an Angel, it's the same thing. And a lot of the angel movies that that came out maybe between the last 10 and 20 years um, are all about angels healing people. But the other way we often think about them is as rescuers. So people are on a, snowy road at night by themselves and they're stuck and they don't have a cell phone and suddenly a truck pulls up and a mysterious stranger gets out and starts their car back up for them and then disappears before they can even say thank you that kind of rescue story so those are the two most common popular portrayals today and they do each have various kinds of antecedents in the old testament and yet they don't even begin to exhaust the variety of ways that the old testament talks about angels.
1: The idea of guardian angels, which I, I I guess is similar to the rescue angel and the healer angel, the idea of a guardian angel how is that a uh related to the idea of these angels as messengers that we see in the in the bible um, you know the idea that we um have these angels who are going to be with us all the time is sure. there is there
0: a place that that has come from yeah i mean there's uh, various kinds of antecedents or sources for that belief. So in the New Testament, for example, you can think about the stories in the book of Acts, where there's one in Acts 12, where Peter is in prison and an angel comes at night and, and comes between the, the two guards sleeping on either side of him and, and sets Peter free. And he's able to walk away from the prison. So that's yeah. a sort of one-shot deal kind of angelic
1: appearance. <laughs> Just one guardian. In, in,
0: in this moment of need, the mm. angel was there to rescue him. No implication that it's a guardian angel. So I'll talk about guardians in a second. But but that that's a, a good example of a place where an angel comes and... Uh, I think, again, it, it goes to the issue of God's providence, that God's providentially... It was not Peter's time. Peter had more mm. work to do for God. Mm. And so... And so this angelic rescue is, uh, uh, for the reader of Acts, it demonstrates that, that God was providentially ordering all of these events, and, uh, and as well as illustrating this very important theological idea that, that, that God sets us free, that there's a kind of liberating aspect of of the work of Christ and the work of God in the world. So that's an example of a sort of one-shot rescue. The idea of a guardian angel has been interpreted differently down through the centuries. So um, I think most typically when we think about it, probably influenced especially by Catholicism, we tend to think of what I call the one person, one angel theory. So often when you say I have a guardian angel, people are implying that they have an angel who has been with them either since birth or maybe since conception, uh, watching over them, guarding them, taking care of them. And this is an idea that that is particularly associated with Catholicism. So people, especially pre-Vatican II, um, I've talked to many Catholics who who learned to pray to their guardian angel every night and who even uh, would make room for their guardian angel on their chair in school. So there's an idea that this guardian is with you all the time. Uh, not only watching over you, rescuing you, keeping you from all the kinds of, uh, you know, dangerous situations into which a child could fall, but also um, watching you morally, helping you to kind of—it's a—it's a kind of a, it could be used by parents as a kind of, um, you know, a warning. Your guardian <laughs> angel is elf watching Elf on the you. shelf. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> like a sort of elf on the shelf to watch over you and make sure you're towing the line. Hmm. Um, so that idea is really, like I said, associated with Catholicism. It goes back many, many centuries. I would say it really goes back to the, the earliest Christian period and maybe, maybe even earlier than that. So the er, we don't have any unmistakable attestation of the idea of a guardian angel in the New Testament, but we do have a writing from shortly thereafter, a book called The Shepherd of Hermas, uh, that does clearly uh, indicate that individuals have not one but two guardian angels. A good one and a bad one. So if you remember, you know, Fred Flintstone with the little angel Fred on one shoulder and angel, bad angel Fred on one shoulder and good angel Fred on the other, you know, that's going (laughs) back to that idea of two guardian angels. And when when Abraham Lincoln says, refers to our better angels, Mm. he's, he's invoking that idea that that we have a better angel that we should listen to as opposed to the Mm -hmm. evil angel that we should not (laughs) listen to. So that idea is very ancient. We see more evidence of it in non-canonical, non-biblical kinds of texts than we do in the Bible itself. But it seems pretty clear that early on, Christians picked up that idea and uh, ran with it for many centuries. Finally, we come to the Reformation and there's some pushing back on it. So Calvin and Luther... Both believe in angels very much, but they push back a bit, especially Calvin, on this idea of one angel, one person, one angel. So Calvin says something to the effect, you know, the Psalms tell us that we have myriads of angels to watch over us. Why would we settle for one? <laughs> um, and, and, and ever after that, the, the idea of guardian angels fell out of favor among Protestants, although it did live on among Catholics uh, for a very long time. I think today... Uh, this idea of guardian angels gets broadened out to the more general idea of rescuing angels and and if you look at literature on angels that was published in the last couple of decades uh really since the turn of the millennium, you're going to find a lot of stories about angels rescuing people
1: why um Why are these stories about angels more popular at sometimes than others you know I know for a while in television there were a lot of angel shows right right <laughs> you know any idea why there's at some points
0: more popular than others or is there i think it's pretty hard to pin down i mean i think okay. that the the most recent phase of angel fervor if you will or angel <laughs> fever um, was really around the turn of the millennium um, whether that momentous event had anything to do with it I think there were lots of factors I mean it it really was often tied in with new age thinking um yeah. and and so that really was flowering at that time so yeah. some of the more new age type authors really went back to old old literature and and hmm. you know picked up on it and elaborated on it um mm. so that that was one stream of thought was kind of the more new age stuff yeah. um and and they they weren't uh, you know, they weren't making stuff up. They were often going back to very ancient traditions. So there's a sixth century document uh, by a, a fellow that's come to be known as Pseudo-Demetrius um, who wrote uh, a whole big treatise on the angelic hierarchy and laid out nine orders of angels in three groups of three. And you know, it was very, very elaborate. And was it, it was believed to be authentically by a first century author until... Uh, I don't know, a few centuries ago. Um, and so so Thomas Aquinas and other people really picked up on Pseudo-Demetrius. Um, and some of the New Age authors, interestingly, pick up on it as well. So they'll go back to it, not necessarily with any critical eye. They're just kind of taking it as, you know, as wisdom to be passed on and continued. Mm-hmm. But you've also got, though, on the more conservative Christian side, um, there, there was uh, maybe 20 years ago again, or maybe even a little longer ago than that, a resurgence of kind of apocalyptic thinking, a belief mm. in um, in a very, very thickly inhabited cosmos full of angels and demons um, all in this moment leading up to the end of time. And so mm. you, if you hear talk about spiritual warfare, it's often coming out of that worldview, this idea that, th- that we live in a world inhabited by angels and demons, and that uh, the demons are working against us, and the angels are on our side, and we have to pray to the angels to cover us from the demonic assault, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So, so really, depending on what literature you're reading, you see lots of varied belief in angels re- resurging, um, like, like I said, uh, maybe 20 years ago. I think another question uh, that often comes up with guardian angels, though, or rescuing angels, maybe... Mm-hmm. Is you know why why would God rescue this person and not that person? You know why why does that person get rescued from the burning burning building and and another person doesn't? Um, And I mean that's that's a that's a question that actually has a lot of theological aspects that make it pretty difficult. I mean it Mm -hmm. it it touches on issues of God's providential ordering of the world. Uh, if, If used kind of carelessly, an idea of a rescuing angel can can lead to the assumption that you know God is kind of very whimsical and um, capricious in in who God decide whom God decides to save, um, or it may lead to an idea that some people just have you know guardian angels that are taking coffee breaks all the time. They just weren't there <laughs> when they were needed. Um, so I mean I think we have to kind of be careful about that because I certainly yeah. would want to affirm that uh, that God is always with us. You know. Mm. When we, when we re- get rescued and when we don't get rescued, mm-hmm. God is with us. That God is always with us, always present to us. Um, and so I don't, I don't mind the idea, but I just think we have to be careful not to um, ma- make inferences from it that would conflict with other th- truths that we want to hold on to. Mm, yeah.
1: Yeah you mentioned um fred flintstone and his his two angels and or the good and the bad angel right. and then also in the um looking at the kind of evangelical um apocalypse aspects that that um you know the the count i guess the counterpoint to angels is often demons um right. and, and a lot of people in the reformed tradition would would probably just reject that notion um of demons as as being in exist existing right. as something that they don't believe, but um, right. b- and yet and they and yet they often do believe in angels, right? Um, which is kind of a funny, you know, that those seem similar when you're looking at you know that Fred Flintstone idea that it's one or yeah. the other on the
0: shoulder. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I think that you get, you get into a lot of questions of consistency when you really start pressing doctrines about mm. angels, <laughs> so. People who don't believe in angels because maybe they seem to, not not to mention not believe in demons, but plenty, I would say Presbyterians, <laughs> yes. for example, mm. maybe, oh, they could give lip service to believing in angels, mm. but it, it forms no part of their daily spiritual life or experience, yeah. right? They, yeah. it, it, For all practical purposes, they don't really believe in angels. Right. So, it, it, and, and if you press them, they, they might say, well, be, I don't know, it's kind of, it just seems sort of mythological, you know, I don't... Mm. OK, well, then what about the Holy Spirit? Do we believe in the mm. Holy Spirit? So <laughs> whatever you press uh, against, you have to ask, well, do the other things that I want to hold up and, and adhere to and, and preserve, do they also fall, if I, if I look at it through that critical mm. lens? Um, I mean, I think that God always speaks to us in, um, th- that God accommodates God's self to us, he speaks to us in language that we can understand. In imagery that we can understand, and um, so so the culture we grow up in, uh, and the kinds of language and imagery that we grow accustomed to from our mother's knee, um, all affect the, the ways that God will communicate with us. Mm. And so, people who are raised in a culture where uh, there is profound belief in angels and or demons are are much more likely to experience. Um, spiritual realities mm. through that kind of imagery, because God accommodates God's self to what they can handle and what what seems natural and and right to them. Um, and and those of us who didn't grow up with that belief probably can't will ourselves to believe in either angels or demons. Mm. It's simply not a part of our inherent worldview. Um, But but there are many other ways that we do access the presence of God. We might think of the Holy Spirit being present Mm. with us. I mean, I'm not I was raised actually in a Methodist home. I became Presbyterian um, in late high school. Um, But, you know, in my home, we never talked about angels or demons at all. I mean, it was just not something that was even remotely on the radar. And so I don't think I can ever will myself to believe in, in those in quite the same way that someone from a different home environment might. But yet the, the same, I, I sometimes in my prayer life, I might, I might envision Christ as an angel, which is a way that early Christians did. And I don't think there's anything heretical about doing that. I think that often when biblical authors talk about demons specifically, they're talking about realities that people encounter that are dangerous or threatening or um, potentially might pull them away from fidelity to their belief and their commitment to living as a, as a person of God. Um, and, and so, so the, the, the demon imagery and de- demon language is, is a way of, of talking about those things that people could, could hold onto and understand. Uh, it, it's, they're less abstract than speaking just about broad principles of evil. And again, just as I said, I can envision Christ as an angel. I can also understand how language about demons in in the Bible um, helps to make sense of of things that we ourselves even today experience. Hmm. So we might experience a kind of spirit, let loose and what we might call a wicked spirit, a spirit of falseness or a spirit falsehood hmm. or a spirit of fear, set forth among. You know, a, a group of people or a a, a whole a whole nation, um, and and it, when we've got our scientific hat on, we're not going to say that's demonic possession. Yeah. But there's something that that biblical language about a demon or a spirit let loose conveys about the the way that that these these the fears operate uh, in our midst. Yeah. So, so I think there's a kind of utility and and um, insight that the language can convey uh that more um uh, demythologized language can't always convey effectively. Mm.
1: I have a uh I, I want to go back just a little bit um to the stories we told a little bit earlier that where um we were talking about um well I guess the topic the fear fear right. <laughs> and, and the idea of do not be afraid um One of the angels, uh, that we hear of in the Bible who has become, you know, something evolved into something, um, is the angel of death. Um, and you know, I, uh, I think that there are so many different variations of what this angel of death idea is, um, can you can you just tell us a little bit about where where in the bible do, does this come from if it and and where has have these idea different ideas um about what the angel of death is and 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 why do we hold on to that um do you think
0: yeah great question um interestingly the bible doesn't say very much at all about the angel of death um and in fact in in the book I wrote, I, I did I, I started off titling a particular chapter The Angel of Death and I ended up changing the title to Angels and Death. Mm. Because when you look at the way that angels are portrayed in connection with death in the Bible, it's not just one there's not just one answer. There's lots of things mm. that angels do in connection with death, both in the Bible and in other non-biblical literature from that same time period. Mm. Um, The place in the Bible where we get maybe what's closest to an angel of death is in um, Luke chapter 16, where you have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. So in that story, you'll remember it's a parable. The poor man died. He was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. So just that little throwaway line was carried away by angels to be with Abraham. So there you've, Jesus is telling a story and he assumes his readers will know what he's talking about. So, so even though very little else is said about angels carrying people to death in mm. the New Testament or by Jesus, that one short reference shows us that this idea was already current at that time, mm. that Jesus could simply assume that his readers would know it. Okay. And when, when, you look at um, other sources from outside the Bible at this time, um, you do see various um, depictions of angels and death in the in the Old Testament. You, you see there are a couple of places that are pretty, kind of interesting. For example, you've got that figure of the Destroyer in Exodus, who hmm. um, who destroys the firstborn but passes over the people of Israel. So maybe that's kind of a grim reaper sort of angel of death. Um, you've got a passage in in Job um, where uh, the 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 figure of death is personified as the king of terrors. That's in Job 18. Um, but but really not much else in, in the Bible itself. But on the other hand, when, again, when we get outside the, the, the Old Testament, and the New Testament, we do see some really interesting things. My One of the most interesting is a book that probably is from about the first century called The Testament of Abraham. And it tells the story in very melodramatic extended form of how it came to be that Abraham finally grew old and died. And um, it just happens that God sends an angel, sends the, I think it's, I don't remember if it's named, that might be Michael, down to get Abraham. And Abraham says, no, 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 I'm not ready to go yet. (laughs) And God sends him back, says, go again, be be more forceful, get him to come. (laughs) Abraham won't come. Finally, Abraham, or God sends the figure of death. And it doesn't say mm. the angel of death, it just says death, but it's a personified figure. So it's mm. clearly sort of an angelic being. And even death has to go twice. The first time he goes in his beautiful garb um, and, uh, and Abraham discerns that it's, not, it's, it's fake, right? So he says, no, you mm. have to show me your real face. Mm. And then finally death shows him his terrible, horrible, unbearable face. And 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 finally, eventually, a lot of cajoling. Abraham goes ahead and dies. But but that this is I, the one reason I find this story so fascinating is because it kind of gives you both sides. You know, it gives you if you if you surveyed people today and you said, well, what's the angel of death? Well, what does that look like? Hmm. You'd probably get a variety of views. You'd get as you kind of alluded to. You'd get people who watch the CBS show "Touched by an Angel" would think of Andrew, who was this you know hmm. really nice looking guy. Very, very comforting, you know. So who wouldn't want to see him, right? So he comes and he's he's the he's the comforting presence of the divine in the moment of death. But then other people would think of the Grim Reaper, um, and what I think the Testament of Abraham shows is that both of those ideas are very, very ancient, um, and and both, you know, they're they're being used for different purposes and conveying different kind of messages each time they occur. But I think that that helps to explain kind of the confusion and the variety of imagery that we have uh, mm. around um, angels and, and death today but I, I think that in any case um, the, the there's a couple of messages if you think of the, the, the Grim Reaper the, the, that imagery or anything like it it's it's reminding us that death is inevitable that we are all mortal mm. that we, we cannot escape our mortality and that that should have an implication for the way we live our lives today uh, that we don't have forever. So, yeah. so that, that, that means something. But on the other hand, that positive imagery is really conveying that, uh, that in life or in death, we belong to God, that, that God is with us at these moments, which might be our most terrifying moment we have in our entire existence is the moment of death. And, and that's when the, the angel's message, do not be afraid, is really, that's when we really need it. And, and when mm. um, I think this positive imagery is making this case that even in those moments, we don't need to fear because God is with us. Mm. I think that it the question of angels, again, I, I'm thinking here that I may be speaking to a lot of people who are Presbyterian or from yep. similar traditions mm-hmm. uh, who, who maybe didn't grow up with a strong inculcation into belief in angels. yes. Um, So speaking to those people, I think that it's worth your time to look at what the Bible says about angels, Mm. not because you should change your worldview um, and suddenly start trying to believe in angels, Mm. but because when the Bible talks about angels, it's so often talking about other things as well. So Mm. when it talks about angels, maybe even in some of these negative roles, like as judges, uh, or as ones who instill fear, that, that those are meant to teach us something. Or when mm. it talks about coming into the presence, you know, Ezekiel's grand vision in Ezekiel chapter 1, uh, which is quite stunning and terrifying, uh, and yet it's, it's meant to convey that, that we can come into the presence of God, mm. which is amazing. Yeah. Um, so I, I, when I read the Bible about angels, I, I like to ask the question, what else is being seen and heard when <laughs> people talk about angels? What else, are, what else are these authors talking about? What's the message for me here or for, for us as a people? Um, yeah. So I think that maybe that just that encouragement to, uh, to take angels seriously, which doesn't have to mean that you take them literally, yeah uh, you may take them literally and i'm not I'm not criticizing <laughs> that but but if you find it hard to take them literally mm. then ask what else is being said and heard here that might be important for me in my walk of faith
1: well thank you so much for joining me dr. Garrett this has really been um, fun and I am excited for to, to be continuing to think about angels as I move into this Christmas season so um thank you for joining me today and um uh, we are going to be taking a bit of a break just a month from our podcast and then we will be popping back on just in time for Lent. So (laughs) that should be fun as well.
0: Well, it's been, it's been a lot of fun talking to you, Jamie, and I I wish you Merry Christmas and the same to all the people who might be listening to this.
1: Mm, Thank you. Merry Christmas to you too. Thank you for listening to
0: Crossroads. Managing editor, Jamie Staley and editors, Vashina Brisbane Kelly Pacayo and Emily Dombro.